Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. New concerns about Spanish language disinformation in Florida, a battleground state that could decide the election. From YouTube to WhatsApp to Facebook, conspiracy theories linked to the Democrats are intensifying online. Elections are a highly vulnerable time for disinformation. Social media feeds are full of falsehoods and conspiracy theories, and it's increasingly spreading in Spanish, which could be a problem for Hispanic and Latino voters. In 2020, Latinos were the second largest voting bloc in the presidential election for the first time, and nearly 70% of those voters get political information from social media platforms, including Facebook and YouTube. That's according to the research group Equus Labs, which studies and polls Latino voter trends. So how big of a problem is Spanish language disinformation? And how could misinformation influence this year's midterms? We'll get into all that and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics, or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful, and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. We're talking about Spanish language misinformation and Latino voters. Joining us is Evelyn Perez Verdia. She's a Democratic strategist and the president of We Are Mas, a multilingual communications firm specializing in countering disinformation. Evelyn, welcome to the program. Hello, Jen. It's good to be here. Also with us is Sam Woolley. He's a professor at the Journalism School at University of Texas at Austin and the program director of Propaganda Research Lab there. Sam, thanks for joining us. Fantastic to be here, Jen. Evelyn, you noticed some Spanish language disinformation percolating back in 2018. What did you see or read that caused you concern? What we first have to understand is that disinformation is borderless. It it can be shared in a WhatsApp group from San Salvador, El Salvador to someone in El Paso, Texas. So it's something that is created, content that's created, which is disinformation, which we have seen that it's premeditated to change the discourse in terms of the elections. And we saw a lot of it. We saw how it increased um, starting with the COVID vaccinations 
to then getting closer to the election, amping up the, the, the sound to disinformation on elections to dissuade voters or to push voters to vote a certain way. I think what's important for people to understand is, first of all, the, the power of the Latino vote. I mean, just thinking about Texas, you know, 40% of Texas population is Latino. And um, from that percentage, they believe, you know, most people believe that around 20, 25% of all the votes are cast by Latinos. But one of the most important things to understand is if you look at um, other people who have researched, let's say Univision and the Center for Mexican Americans in 2020, when they researched Texas, there was 41% of those Latino interviewed, 41% of Latinos interviewed that believed the conspiracies that were sent to them. So this is a very dangerous time because we continue to see this, not only in underground or private WhatsApp channels, but now we're seeing conspiracy theories happening from our own elected officials sometimes. And that is what's concerning. There, these are the people that our communities should trust. And that's the most dangerous piece of all of it. Sam, where does this disinformation typically spread and, and circulate? So it spreads on, you know, a lot of the usual suspects on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Reddit, etc. But crucially, it also spreads on what my team calls encrypted messaging applications in private spaces online. WhatsApp, for instance, which uh, many people use uh, to for its free texting, um, is very, very popular in the Latino community across the country uh, and in Texas. And so oftentimes we see um, mis- and disinformation spreading on WhatsApp, which is a bit worrying because it makes it a lot harder to, to study, uh, given that it's encrypted or private. Um, the other thing about that is that on WhatsApp, you're usually interacting with people you know. Uh, some of the, the groups run up to around 250 people. And so it's friends, family, etc. And when they spread uh, misinformation to you uh, unknowingly, you're much more likely to believe it given that relationship. Now, Evelyn, this issue really gained traction in South Florida around the 2020 presidential election. A recent article on Univision's website reported that, quote, the Hispanic community in the U.S. has become the perfect victim of disinformation, end quote. How has Florida's Latino population been an example of that? Well, we've seen a lot of individuals, um, I, I think that in terms of our Latino communities, fearful of who they should vote for, you know, and, and we have to address one of the biggest issues. When we first started and when I first started seeing the disinformation in the WhatsApp channels, it was, in fe- it was in 2018 in the November elections where they kept on saying that, you know, I saw these YouTube videos saying that, you know, let me show you the difference between Ron DeSantis, the capitalist, and Andrew Gill- Gillum, the socialist. And they did a coordinated campaign on Andrew Gillum focused on comparing him to Stalin and Castro, just, just very outright lies. And what we see now is that that hasn't gone away, but we also um, have to be very careful of the words we use. I mean, a very good example is the word progresista, progressive. One of the things that we're seeing in these disinformation channels, be it Telegram or WhatsApp channels or YouTube channels, where content is created in Latin America that then arrives here to Latinos, is that they're using the word progresista radical, which means radical progressive. And why are they using this word? Because that word, for some Latin Americans, first-generation voters who now vote here, who are U.S. citizens, it can mean socialist and communist. So 
you know, those are words that we need to understand and to not use because we're making voters practically run the other way by using them. Sam, an article in Newsweek published back in December called out Texas as the next target for, quote, disinformation aimed at Latinos. How are you seeing it play out in Texas? I think one of the the most marked changes, the differences between, say, for instance, Texas and Florida, is that a lot of the disinformation that we see flowing right now surrounding the primaries is targeting rural voters versus uh, the urban voters, uh, overwhelmingly urban voters that were targeted in places like Miami. Uh, This means that folks uh, in places like the Rio Grande Valley and along the Texas border are being targeted with a lot of very specific types of disinformation aimed at targeting their multifaceted identities. So, uh, you know, it's not just it's not just targeting them because they are Latino. It's targeting them because they are a Latino who believes specific things. So it targets them professionally. So the disinformation says things like XYZ candidate wants to take away oil or gas jobs or they want to take away all guns or they want to uh, get rid of um, any they want to get rid of any rules about abortion or they're anti-catholic and so you start to see that this really grows to become quite a potent melange of of disinformation when it gets targeted in those specific ways. Al, the Committee on House Administration recently held a roundtable in early February about this issue. Let's listen to a clip from former Democratic Representative Debbie Mukersell Powell of South Florida. The disinformation targeting our Spanish-speaking communities uh, has gone completely unchecked, and that is the problem on mainstream outlets and digital platforms. While this is problematic, what's most concerning is the fact that this is now shaping um, and pervading more traditional outlets in South Florida. We have also seen the rise of disinformation, not just here, but also across Texas, along the southern border, in Hispanic communities, in New Mexico, in Arizona, and also in California. This has been coordinated not only now, what it appears to be by media outlets, but it is well coordinated by elected officials in high levels of government, whether in the U.S. Senate, in the U.S. Congress, or local state office. Sam, what role have elected officials had, uh, what role have they played in spreading misinformation? Unfortunately, oftentimes these days, uh, elected officials themselves engage in spreading misinformation. Uh, If we think of misinformation as accidentally spread false content, lots of times uh, these elected officials or candidates for office will accidentally spread it uh, or say that they accidentally spread it. In other cases at my lab at UT, what we found is that there is actually quite an organized ecosystem of uh, strategists out there that also help to spread disinformation or purpose spread false content. um, And oftentimes they're working for politicians as well. What have tech companies done to address this issue of misinformation in Spanish and other foreign languages? Great question. Um, Well, one of the big things we learned during the uh, Francis Hogan leak um, several months ago was that Facebook had really known that it was failing to address uh, Spanish language disinformation and misinformation. So the content moderation practices that were going on there were really falling short when it came to Spanish language disinformation in the U.S., there's a lot of attention that's been paid uh, in the United States to English language disinformation. But as you mentioned, uh, and one of the folks on Twitter said, it's like the Wild West uh, when it comes to Spanish language. And, and that, you know, kind of sums it up in a, in a big way. There is a lot more disinformation in the Spanish language ecosystem on a site like Facebook or a site like YouTube than, than someone would experience if they were reading in English. 
Well, the Congressional Hispanic Caucus has requested meetings with tech leaders to discuss how the platform is addressing this issue. Last year, the advocacy group Avaz issued a report that found 70 percent of the Spanish language misinformation on Facebook didn't get a warning label. That's compared to 29 percent of English language misinformation. Evelyn, what have been the consequences of that disparity? Well, the consequences are strong, Jen, because, you know, what we have to realize, a lot of people that I've talked to, um, and I actually was at the, at the meeting, I, I briefed the panelists and the members of Congress on mis- and disinformation at the, at the roundtable that the members of Congress had in Miami on February 7th. And one of the things that I think it's important for many people who are listening in the United States, and it's something, it was a research done by Global Americans, a think tank group in D.C., is the fact that there are influencers and channels in Spanish in Latin American countries spreading disinformation and conspiracy theories about U.S. politics. And what it's called, it's called feedback loop. What that means is that they found out practically that if they pair their audiences in Latin America with the audiences here in the United States, they can reach a larger U.S. audience. Because not only do I have now Evelyn receiving this information here in, in, in the United States, but I might get my mom, who's in Colombia, to send it to me also. And once again, building that, that connection of trust of people you love, sending you information that's not correct. Let's listen to a clip from Tamoa Kalazadia. She supervises Univision's news fact-checking platform, El Detector. That's the first Spanish-language one in the U.S., and it was created in 2016. Here's what she told our producer, Sofia Alvarez-Boyd, about the pattern she sees. We are producing some 500 fact-checks last year in the middle of the pandemic. And right now we are producing, in average, uh, one check per day. Uh, We're seeing manipulated images in photos and videos or images out of context, which means they are authentic images, but they are from events, times, and places different to the situation they are being used for. We are also seeing that in the conflict between Ukraine and Russia right now, We are seeing manipulated videos, for example, President Biden saying something in English in a press conference, but with Spanish subtitles that say something different than what he actually said. Like, we are going to attack Russia. This is a perfect example of how to deceive the Hispanic community that does not speak English. The problem is huge. It's really huge and it's not enough because then our work is meticulous, is rigorous, and we publish our work two days later, three days later, you know. We have to, to call many sources to, to confirm everything. But in social media, they spread this information in minutes, in seconds. The trendy topic is every day with a lot of misinformation. And sometimes it's really frustrating. Hearing Tamoa there fighting an uphill battle against disinformation. Evelyn, how effective are fact-checking platforms like El Detector? Tamoa Calzadilla Univision is doing a great job with the work that they're doing in Univision with the Detector de Mentiras. But something that's really important to understand is that 
what the Tamo is doing is actually part of a large organization of fact or uh, fact checking organizations worldwide, which is part of the Pointer Institute, which is 99 or over 100 fact checking organizations in over 70 countries and over 43 languages that are working to counter or to let people know of the disinformation or misinformation that they're seeing in their communities. So that's how we have to see this. This is not just about Spanish. This is about Mandarin. This is about Hindi. I mean, this is a large, large problem that we have to look in, in a larger spectrum that is really affecting our communities worldwide and creating the polarization that we are seeing, not only in the United States, but across the, across, across the globe. We got this question from Marshalls1990, who asks, It seems that fighting virtual disinformation is a losing cause. Campaigns are normally filled with exaggeration and falsehoods, even without the Internet, and its pervasive ability to spread lies. Is there really any effective means of stopping this? I mean, Sam, in your research, what are the best ways to counter disinformation? I think that we need to think about the ways to respond to disinformation online in, in three ways, really. There's there's sort of the short-term, medium-term, and the long-term. Um, the shortest term of all solutions are really the, the quick fact checks, uh, the quick turnaround um, analyses of a given story and letting people know that it's not real. Those can actually sometimes backfire, particularly if you're seeing fact checks happen from the top down. So if Facebook is telling someone they shared something incorrectly, or if a partner of Facebook um, or Apple is sharing something with them and saying, you did, you did something wrong, they're going to double down on what they believe. Um, In the longer term, though, we've got to think about things like digital uh, or informational literacy, we've got to train people uh, to slow down to think uh, very carefully before they share things. And we've also got to really to arm people with tools uh, that allow them to check whether or not an image is doctored or a video is doctored, et cetera. So part of it is individual action, but the other part is uh, perhaps adjustments in the system that make make it easier for us to, to check this information. I'm really curious to hear from you, Evelyn, on that media literacy piece. How steep of a hill is it to climb Uh, Just to get people to understand, you know, if I'm sharing from this site, this isn't a reliable site versus, you know, this other piece of information I've received from from a different resource. Well, you know, once again, the Tector de Mentiras and others have been doing a great job of of letting people know what's being um, what's out there. Right. And what's being said and just kind of letting them know how they can find out if something might be misinformation or disinformation. But I think. I would like to say something that I think is really important. And I think that when we counter disinformation, we have to remember that this countering disinformation should be a nonpartisan issue. You know, this is something that affects our democracy. And, and I also have to say, I mean, when we started seeing the socialism and communism attacks in 2018, we had a plan that we sent, we went to DC and presented a plan of how to, how to counter this, how to express really who we really are as Americans. And it's never due to a lack of ideas. We have a plan of how to counter disinformation. And it's always, and it should always be, it doesn't matter the political affiliation, should be based on ethics, on facts, and the truth. And that's what we want to focus on. 
That's Evelyn Perez-Verdia. She's a democratic, stra- democratic strategist and the president of We Are Moss. That's a firm that specializes in countering disinformation. Evelyn, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you. As Democrats have been calling out the rise of disinformation targeted at Latino voters, Republicans have been mostly quiet on the issue. And in fact, they're gaining support among this voting bloc. According to a recent polling memo from the Republican Congressional Committee, Hispanic and Latino support for Democrats is falling. Only 44 percent of those voters are likely to vote Democratic and believe Republicans are more trustworthy to deal with issues like crime, immigration and the economy. Compare that to the 63 percent of Hispanic and Latino voters who cast their ballots for Democrats. Democrats in 2020. In 2020, Trump and the GOP gained the largest approval rating among Hispanic women, and we can see that happening in South Texas, where Latinas are running in this year's primary as GOP candidates. Some even switched parties. Jack Herrera has been reporting on this trend, and he's the senior editor at Texas Monthly. He joins us now from Austin. Jack, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jen. It's good to be here. So first, remind us how large the Latino voting bloc in Texas is. The Latino voting bloc in Texas is imminently going to be the largest, single largest voting bloc in Texas, at least the largest ethnic group in the country, in the, in the, in the state. Uh, in the next few years, demographers predict that they will be at around 42% of all Texans, the largest plurality in the state. And so when you talk about the future of Texas and Latino politics in Texas, what you're really talking about is the future of the entire state. How Latinos vote in the next 10 years will determine how Texas votes, potentially through the rest of its history. We got this tweet from Drew who says, I reckon that Spanish language misinformation campaigns play a small part in the huge gains Trump saw among Hispanics in 2020. Subjected minority groups are waking up to the fact that Democrat elitists are not for them. The narrative is shifting. Jack, as someone who's been following this, when did you start to see a shift? Yeah. So I do think that 2020 marks, the 2020 election marks an inflection point when across counties, across congressional districts of South Texas, you saw Republicans gain between 2016 and 2020 by phenomenal amounts, more than they gained anywhere else in the country, um, only competing with South Florida. Uh, their entire counties, uh, Zapata County, which I spent some time in uh, during an, in the wake of the election in 2020 that had not voted for Republican since William Harding was on the ballot over 100 years ago. It but, went for Trump in the last election. And, and was it clear what was driving that? Yeah. So I think that any reporter or politician that can tell you that they can break down this trend in South Texas in 2020 down to a single issue or even a, you know, a small number of issues is wrong. People are complicated. This is a multifaceted issue. But I do think that the primary thing comes down to how uh, the different parties and partisan groups were reaching voters. Democrats, because of the uh, largely because of coronavirus uh, restrictions, and also because of their confidence that they were going to keep a strong Democrat South Texas, which has voted Democrat for years, weren't investing in the same sort of ground game or information messaging campaign that Republicans get. Uh, engaged in. I think conservatives in South Texas realized that Hispanic voters, Latino voters, were an amenable group of voters to a conservative Republican and Trumpist platform. And they reached out to people. They knocked on doors. They held posadas. They uh, had mailing campaigns that met people face to face. And I think that they were able to change a lot of people's minds. 
We're discussing the Texas primary and the issues affecting Latino voters. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's get back to Spanish language misinformation and Latino voters. And we're going to bring another voice into the conversation. Mike Madrid is a GOP consultant on Latino voting trends and analysis. He's the co-founder of the Lincoln Project. That's a political action committee that was formed in 2019 to prevent former President Trump from being elected. Mike, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Mike, we just heard from Jack Herrera about Latinos leaning more Republican in South Texas in the Rio Grande Valley. How are you seeing that shift nationally? Well, that's a great question. And I think Jack accurately points out that there were extraordinarily large gains, both in um, South Texas through the Rio Grande Valley and in Miami-Dade um, when you leave Texas. But it's important to understand, and I think this really sets the whole frame of what is happening, these shifts happened, though not to the same extent, in virtually every precinct that was Hispanic, that had a, a large number of Hispanic density or immigrant groups throughout the entire country with, with the exception of uh, counties and districts in California and Arizona. And the reason is, uh, is really simple. Uh, it really comes down to what you mentioned in the early polling, which is there's a very large and pervasive list of issues that are of concern to the Hispanic Latino community that simply aren't being addressed. And I think what we do, and, then I, and I'm suggesting this is by both parties, incidentally, um, and, and we really do ourselves in the community a disservice when we start to find these small tactical ways of trying to find how this could possibly be happening. Because it's not just about Spanish misinformation or disinformation. It's not just showing up at somebody's quinceanera. You can't get these types of shifts without something much more significant demographically occurring. And that's what we really need to keep our eyes on is what we're seeing is the fastest growth with second and third generation Hispanic voters, the English dominant or English exclusive. And they are now beginning to take on the characteristics of the overall electorate. And that's what's occurring. That's why there's this significant shift. Does that explain everything that's going on uh, in a lot of these counties in Texas? No, but I would suggest it, it, it explains the overwhelming number of, uh, of voter shifts that are happening. And that also comes from the DCCCs, the Democratic uh, Congressional Committee, campaign committees, own research um, in, in polling that they released last week, showing that it's not just populist economic issues, which is the main driver of these changes, but it's now cultural issues, which are moving Hispanic Latino voters across generation, across geography, um, towards the Republican column. So it's it, what we're really watching is, is this a much larger transformation than anything tactical can explain? I'm curious to hear from you as well, Jack, and your reporting. Uh, 
you know, after the the election, there was a lot of critique uh, of how we we talked about Latino voters, the media. I'll say that using that uh, umbrella very very broadly, but treating it as a monolith and not addressing or, or trying to understand some of the complexity within that group. Do you think that's a fair critique? Absolutely. And I think that a lot of the surprise, specifically in South Texas, um, is a red flag that people aren't paying attention to the nuances in our community. Um, I think that any Latino anywhere in the country uh, will be able to tell you pretty clearly that a Mexican-American or somebody that calls themselves a Tejano in South Texas is different than a Cubano in South Florida or a Salvadoran in San Francisco. Um, I think that these nuances led to the vast differences in how Latinos voted. As Mike mentioned, in California and Arizona, increases in Latino turnout for Democrats went to so far as to help Arizona turn blue uh, for come out uh, for Joe Biden in the last presidential election. In Texas, the shift went in the other direction. And so these differences in communities, even within co- different country groups, when you look at Mexican-Americans in Arizona versus Mexican-Americans in Texas, their politics, the words they call themselves, the food they eat, it's different. And I think that those differences, now that they're starting to have political ramifications, now that that can determine how a state goes Republican or Democrat, politicians and we in the media are starting to care about them in the first time. These differences in really interesting aspects of uh, Rio Grande and South Texas culture, that Tejano culture, that has a history that's older than this country is finally being paid attention to because it could determine which party is in power in Texas and in Washington through a next generation. We got this tweet from Rachel who says, countering myths and disinformation and propaganda from fact-checking and validating sources is a losing strategy. All humans are hardwired with self-preservation anxiety triggers, a.k.a. fear. Regardless of education or income, conspiracies give easy answers to the things we fear. Mike, how much should Democrats and Republicans be worried about this issue of myths and disinformation, regardless of the language it's occurring in, if they want to gain support of Latino voters? The, the problem of misinformation and disinformation is an extremely uh, toxic, corrosive um, dynamic that is, is ruining our democracy. Um, and it is something we, we do need to do a better job of trying to figure out. I'm not sure that in the digital age that the old adage of, you know, just more information is the way you get rid of misinformation. Um, I, I'm not sure that that's true or not. And I think we're struggling as, as a democracy to try to figure out how to combat this. What I will say is, is as a political consultant who's been doing this for 30 years, you know, when I was younger in this profession, the whole art, the whole craft of the trade was persuasion. When I see young political consultants now, that's not what they're doing. There's a lot more political consultants who believe um, that it's just okay to, to blatantly lie. And it's, it's d- deeply troubling. It, it's very problematic. And I think that sometimes if we are going to focus on, on the, the monolingual Spanish or Spanish-dominant speaker, they tend to be more recently migrated, and they tend to be a little bit more influenced by the way that we practice politics here because they're trying to do their civic duty and show up and vote. And that does create an increased exposure, and we do need to be mindful of that. Um, and we do need to police that um, through, through, through both the regulatory means that are being discussed by people on this channel through nonprofits and through charitable groups. But I think we need to start reexamining some of the federal election laws and state election laws that we use to try to, to rein this in. Because 
again, the old idea that, that simply more information or more truth will flush out or, 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 or you know, the, sun, the sunlight will, will, will you know, shake away the, the, the disease here uh, is not proving to be correct. And if we don't get this back on track, I'm, I'm deeply concerned about the direction we're heading in. That's Mike Madrid. He's co-founder of the Lincoln Project, a super PAC that is anti-Trump. He's also a GOP consultant on Latino voting trends and analysis. Also with us today, Sam Woolley. He's a professor at the Journalism School at University of Texas at Austin and program director of the Propaganda Research Lab there. Also with us, Jack Herrera, senior editor at Texas Monthly. Mike, Sam, Jack, thanks for speaking with us. Today's producer was Sophia Alvarez-Boyd. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.